Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company based in upstate New York, committed to making the highest quality artist materials. From their acrylic paints, Williamsburg oils, and core watercolors, Golden is making the best stuff out there for artists to make their best stuff. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Rafael Rosendahl is a Dutch-Brazilian visual artist based out of New York City who uses the internet as his canvas. He also creates installations, tapestries, lenticulars, haiku, and lectures. He's had exhibitions at Times Square, Center Pompidou, the Venice Biennale, the Valencia Biennale, the Postmasters Gallery, the Whole Gallery, TSCA Gallery in Tokyo, Seoul Art Square, NIMK in Amsterdam, and the Stedelijk Museum, amongst many others. His work has been covered in Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Flash Art, Dazed and Confused, Interview, Wired, Purple, McSweeney's, O Global, Vice, Creators Project, Art Review, Vogue Magazine, and many more publications. He's lectured at Yale, at DLD in Munich, the AIT in Tokyo, L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris, NYU in New York, amongst other venues. Raphael stopped by my studio in Bushwick for a talk about moving from city to city, country to country, Salvatore Dali, making websites as art, and much more. Here's our conversation. For me, it would put an end to the thought like, oh, it's resolved. Yeah. It might become a work if I don't talk about it. So there's something about not talking too much. That, uh, I also notice a lot of young artists, or artists that I know that are really good at talking and it can be a hindrance where they feel they're obviously gifted people they're, they're very knowledgeable and well versed in media and understanding the world and then the work kind of comes second because they're so good at talking and then they're so good at argumenting why their work is the best in the world and why doesn't the world see that and right. so that become a that being very articulate can be can work against you I guess yeah yeah I know yeah. what you mean well f- part of the reason I started this one is because I felt like the only time you ever hear artists is when they're talking about their work. Yeah. But you very rarely hear them talking about, you know, where, what music they listen to or where they hang out or, you know. Well, I think I came up to when it was the internet and before social media. So it it was immediately this feeling of like gatekeepers are stupid. We don't need gatekeepers. We can publish ourselves, which I still think for any young artist, if you find a way of distributing your ideas or work without any hindrance the first few years, I think it's healthy. But, um, And then it was immediately also like, you, there, this was before blogs, but you would have a homepage and put a picture of yourself on the homepage usually. like yeah. No one agreed to do that, but it was kind of intuitive thing of like, oh, you don't know who I am, so here's a picture this of This is me. Yeah. <laughs> And then you show your works, but very quickly when social media arrived, you're also like, oh, I'm listening to this song. And now that that kind of passed and you see, it's also kind of 
disgusting. It's like, why do I have to know everything about someone? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. But at the same time, I'm, I love listening to interviews with older artists and uh, learning from them. And uh, even though sometimes they say stupid stuff, that it might be good stuff in between. And, right. Yeah. And uh, I think nowadays with social media, sharing has a specific packaging to it. It's kind of, you know, in certain formats or whatever, but it's, it's almost like sharing purposefully. Whereas if you're just talking about your life, it's not necessarily yeah. that you're intending to share about it. It's more of just... Yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. what makes you you as yeah. opposed to like hey here's my outfit of the day I, I always <laughs> look a lot at the art history and then uh, you have someone like Dali who I think was the first celebrity artist to that level yeah. I think there were celebrity artists before but he was the first to grab the power of media and create this persona people always talk about Warhol but I think he did a lot of things before Warhol yeah. that Warhol maybe perfected but he painted movie stars and Coke bottles and cars, but in a in not as deadpan as Warhol. Right. So, uh, but he was on the cover of Time magazine. Like he was big deal. Yeah. Um, and so that preceded this uh, attention economy and this putting yourself out there and all, all this. And maybe the other side of the spectrum is someone like Solowit, where it's like. I want the work to be as unpersonal as possible. Right. It's mathematics, there are formulas, anyone can execute it. I don't want to talk to you. Just look at the work. My personality is unimportant. And then there are a few interviews with Solowit, and then you understand he was a really dull person. Yeah. He's not charismatic at all. <laughs> so he didn't have a choice because if he did try the media thing and, and the personality thing, it, it wouldn't work. You got to go with your strengths. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's no clear answer. What's the better way? So in the case of Dali, I find his personality the work. Yeah. And all the other things are extensions of the personality. And he said this himself in interviews. Right. He, they, they asked him what is what is really your key work, and he said it's my personality. Yeah. And I think in the case of Solowit, maybe most people would argue the most interesting part of his work is the murals that. They mutate according to the space, and they appear anywhere, and that's the radical thing, but not not his person. Nobody's like, oh, man, Saul, that was one crazy dude. Right. So, <laughs> right. Uh, but in the case of Dali, he, he also said, there's two, two painters that I really, I don't have any books. I get all my information from YouTube, so mm-hmm. I watch a lot of interviews. And there's an interview with Willem de Kooning where he says something like, you know, Painters, uh, they're not too bright. If you, if you look at Monet and it's like a stack of hay with some sun shining on it, it doesn't take a big mind. And then Dali said the opposite. He said, yeah, um, I my work is problematic because I'm too intelligent to be a painter. Right. And, of course, when you hear him talk, you think he's a clown, and it, 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 it's it's like almost like a Trump statement saying I'm too intelligent. But... It is true that his work is so heady that it gets in the way of of the the lushness of the material, and it, it, it's uh, so. I don't enjoy his paintings that much, but his interviews and his diaries and his uh, yeah. This so is the most interesting part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so maybe that's what I was worried about doing the podcast and that talking too much would obstruct the work. Yeah, yeah. Do you, I always feel like we'll not. No matter how many people listen to the podcast, I feel like no one cares that much about me. So why not just say it? Like, I feel there's no mystique, really. You know what I mean? It's just... Oh, okay. Yeah, but maybe you're interviewing people. But I think 
um, we were doing the podcast where it was really our opinion for an hour every oh, week. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it wasn't so much about art because it would be current events and topics and then politics seeps in. Mm-hmm. And then I would say stuff, like, just to give an example where I think, like, oh, that was dumb. Like, <laughs> I would say, like, oh, the fact that we have a rise of populism in an age of short-form communication, and those two might be connected. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe Twitter and things like that encourage people to have outlandish statements. But then you look back at history and there's been many waves of populism before Twitter right? with people who were highly educated and into classical music and classic literature. It doesn't mean if you read classic literature... So we were basically arguing for a high culture being uh, something that is helpful for humanity. Right. I think a lot of artists will say, like, well, art seems useless, but it, it cleanses the soul and you become more empathic and whatever. Yeah. And so I just became very weary of, of, of making these kind of statements of arts relation as a responsibility to the greater good and things like that. And now I'm just like, I'll just make the work and then other people can figure out what, what its significance is. Yeah. Well, in a parallel to that, do you look back at work that you've done and feel self-conscious about it because it's making an aesthetic statement? That, no, no, no. So that you feel good about. Yeah. I, 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 um, you know what I mean? Where you could have like things that you I don't say in the have, past. I don't have aesthetic change. regrets. Let's put it that way. I don't look at all the work and I'm like, oh man, that was ugly and, and you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. But I, I, all the time when I say stuff, I'm like, that was really stupid. And, but I also have that when I listen to other people's podcasts and uh, people, and especially when um, n- people who are talking about things outside of their own field. So, like if an, an airplane engineer starts making statements about literature or uh, the other way around, and I think that that gets problematic. I mean, it, it's interesting from a sort of imagination point of view, but when it gets too serious, it's like, why, why would I want to know how Dali would form a cabinet? And uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Although in his case, it was interesting. It, it was an extension. Yeah. Right, because his mind is so interesting. Well, he was just like, I, I, I like either people being ultra poor or ultra wealthy and, mm-hmm. the, and everything in the middle is terrible. Which <laughs> yeah. is, and so from his point of view of sort of this aristocratic personality, but at the same time hanging out with peasants in a, in a fishing village where he grew up and, and had a house. So he liked the charm of the extremes. Right. Yeah. Um, Do you feel a tie in not literal a literal tie to his sensibilities and his the questions he asks in his work to some of the things that you're interested in in making work um well i, I like without I, the surrealism I, no but um so it i i say this all the he, here's what i said with the the problem of articulating things is um once I start articulating things, you start to believe it and you put yourself in a direction. So I had this, I've always had a talent for moving image. So it was in art school and I was making things like comic books or photographs and they always looked kind of a lot like something that had been done before. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this comics kind of look like Robert Crumb and oh, those photos look like of a certain era. And then, yeah. And then the computer came along and I could work with moving images and it was immediately more unique so it was clear like oh i've found something that is a new area even though there's still aesthetic connections to history but still 
There's a freshness yeah. to the medium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and it was clear that I had a, more of a talent for moving images. That was what my strength was. And then you do that for a few years, you're making moving images, and then I try to make uh, still images, and they're not so interesting. And then I start verbalizing or explaining why my brain makes moving images better than still images. Mm-hmm. And you start saying, well, yeah. And then I said start formulating I should never make objects because moving images are not objects you, you can have a moving sculpture but a moving image is uh, a sequence of images and so blah blah it shouldn't. and then at some point I do find materials that work for me and ideas that work for me so, and you contradict what you said before but I really think for five or eight years I didn't go anywhere outside of moving images just because I had said that yeah so you start building these fences with words and right. you say oh this is my area yeah, that's what I was going to say. It seems like if you don't have any of those regrets with images, then maybe it's the sort of spe- specificity of of words, like yeah. defining something. Yeah, the and defining part, yeah. And that's what's it, great words, about art. words are not inherently defining, but uh, maybe when I use words, it, it works out that way. Or if you make a statement. Yeah. And a lot of times when it relates to, in relation to artwork or talking about it, you end up defining things. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that... Um, I, I guess Hockney said something about uh, if you want to critique photography, you have to answer in the language of photography. Mm-hmm. You, you can't... Uh, it's a little bit like talking about sex, and at some point you have to do it. Right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that being said, I'm here. I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, good. it's all getting recorded today. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, so well, where did you grow up? Uh, in Amsterdam in the Netherlands oh yeah um, uh, I was born in Amsterdam and then lived in different places in the Netherlands and then uh, my mom's from Brazil so mm-hmm. we would go there once a year and sort of always been comfortable with travel and always liked travel did you visit extended family when you went there yeah yeah my half my family is there yeah yeah and uh, so I, and I think I always grew up coming from a country that works very well but is kind of cold and rainy mm-hmm. and then the other half of my family was in this country that's really fun but doesn't work at all yeah and, and it's I think sunny and it's warm. sunny and the food is better and the, the beach is amazing and then um, you go back to the Netherlands and everything works but every time you come back from a place like that is like a reality check that's a pretty and, severe yeah difference going yeah, on yeah 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 and it's definitely, Brazil is a country to visit and not to live. It's really hard to get things done. But uh, um, I think I grew up immediately with this feeling of like, oh, there's there's much more out there. And uh, so when I graduated, I moved to L.A. for a year. And then I came back. I would always sort of move and come back and move and come back. Then I think after L.A., I lived in Paris for a while. And then I came back and then I was in the U.S. for a few months and then went to Japan for a few months and then that wasn't it and then moved to Berlin and then that wasn't it and moved back and then tried Berlin again. When you were moving to these different places, were yeah. you thinking, oh, I'm going to stay here for a long time? Yeah, especially L.A. I, I'd visited a few times before and I'd also visited New York, but yeah. I never liked it. I, I was like, this place is dirty and expensive. It doesn't make sense. Those statements are both true. Yeah. <laughs> and then, 
I thought LA is great because it's uh, English speaking. There's a lot of opportunities for sort of a crossover of popular culture and art, which I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have I, film, you have moving image yeah, everywhere. Yeah, like what's not to like? And then I realized that it's one big suburb <laughs> once you're there. <laughs> and, that is and I don't like suburbs, so that that became clear. And then Berlin, in theory, was great because there's like a lot of young artists and uh, affordable space. And I was there and I made a lot of friends. And I think it was very meaningful being there. And I met a lot of people that uh, uh, that shaped the way I work and, yeah. and, uh, and a lot of good times also. But overall, it wasn't my city. And then uh, went back to Amsterdam, then even tried Berlin again and then I had some residency, but it was very informal. I just posted on Facebook. It's like, hey, I'm looking for an apartment in Berlin. And someone replied, oh, I have this residency, but we don't have anyone. So if you want to come, <laughs> sure. And I ended up that staying for a year. Yeah. And it, and it was this funny moment where I had a free pl- work and life space. I had tons of friends. And uh, I was in the middle of the center of Berlin. And there was always openings and people. And for some reason, I was miserable. And I couldn't understand why, and I thought there must be something wrong with me because I'm in in art paradise and still right. think. And then I remember going to an opening of a friend and seeing the discourse, and I didn't feel connected. And then I was like, "Well, there's nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with them, but this is just not my place." And yeah. then I packed up my stuff and went back to Amsterdam, and then visited New York a few times, and then. Uh, New York started making more sense in the sense that I like the people. Right. And then I met my wife, and then I was like, oh, okay, well, then I'll move. And then now I've been stuck here. So you met your wife here? Yeah, yeah. That was seven years ago. And then, um, uh, well, n- n- then New York is always... The- so the- I think the bottom line for a lot of artists from the Netherlands, and our first podcast episode was about this, because Jeremy's from Canada and I'm from the Netherlands, which are both great countries to live and work and raise a family and uh, very safe and functional and reasonable. Yeah. But for artists, um, it's really hard to... um, I think art is a big city profession and it's hard to do in a city that's not... So it's hard to do... It's hard to find a a platform that will support you for your whole career to do what you want. Definitely. So that's why we all put up with it. Yeah, otherwise, I mean, there's there's a lot of people who would get out of here. You know? Yeah, which is also, it was one of the other topics in, in, the, in the podcast. Like, if, if we have the internet, why do we still have to be in cities? Right. Yeah, do we really need to? I have yeah. students who ask me all the time, do yeah. I really need to move to New York or L.A. Yeah, to, yeah. to make it? Yeah. And um, that, it's that, difficult. It's that question. Yeah, exactly. It's a difficult, and especially it's, how, it's becoming more and more ridiculous, the, the prices. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. another giant. Back yeah. when it was cheaper... Yeah, you could you could you know rough it basically, yeah, but yeah, nowadays yeah. it's a lot harder to do that. Yeah, and you do have the internet to get the word out. And, yeah, you know. but then you, you you don't get so close to the works, and you don't meet the person, and uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, for me personally, so moved here, and then my wife works here, and she's American, so it's not such an easy jump back. Right, which was good in a way that it keeps me here, because there's been a lot of times where I'm like, this city is ridiculous. Let's just live like humans you got the itch to get out (laughs) (laughs) yeah but then every time it gets really bad then something happened and it gets a lot better and so uh, that's the way it works here i think is i i guess a lot of people when they're around 35 or 
I just turned 39. You start making this equation, like at what point do I want to feel comfortable? And, uh, right, yeah. Quality of life. Or, but um, and the, the whole... So that being said, the question growing up and all this stuff, I, I was always interested in travel and I think that made me also stay away from objects in a studio and all these things so yeah because like, you can move you know yeah and I can just work on my laptop and make my work and everything's compact and it shoots across the network and I work together with people but they're online as well so right. I work with a programmer and two different programmers and then we just talk on Skype and develop the work together in Dropbox and then you know yeah and then I get to an exhibition and they have projectors and I email the work and it, it's all very... Yeah, shipping the work becomes a lot yeah, easier. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that the, was a conscious, that kind of yeah, it was a necessity played into the in, equation? Yeah, yeah. It all, uh, because before the internet, uh, I liked drawing and I would have a huge, like a giant box filled with old magazines of all kinds just for image references. Like, oh, what does a train look like? And then... And, Oh, okay. That's that's where the valves go. That's where the wheels go. Okay, I forgot. And then Google Image came along, so I could throw out the whole box of magazines. And then I started playing more on the computer, and I could throw out the drafting table. And it just over the years, every time moving, just uh, got rid of more and more stuff. Yeah, you can so, really streamline the process. Yeah, and it became a whole obsession of having as little stuff as possible. Yeah, when I was first, when I first moved to the city. I used to go to the New York Public Library exactly. Image Library. I would rip out pages, which you're not supposed to oh, do. Oh, yeah. Well, I would go to... Have you ever gone to the Image Library? It no. was like across from Bryant Park. It was a separate building. Oh, okay. And you could go in and just keyword search and then go find folders that yeah. just had printout pictures of oh, whatever wow. you like, and you could photocopy those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was my Google was image yeah, before. Exactly. And they still probably have tons of images that are not on the internet. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. But it's like they still have in musical instruments that you'll never really copy that sound, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it's going on tour with 18 different instruments is tricky. Yeah. And taking a laptop makes it a lot. <laughs> I always feel jealous yeah. of people like electronic musicians who can go on the road in a, in a you know, two-seat coupe or something and drive yeah, across yeah, the country yeah, yeah. and play shows. Yeah. I mean, it's also, uh, I have friends in bands and I have friends who DJ or electronic music and the the profit margin is a lot better for a single person yeah. than for a group <laughs> yeah. with roadies and all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, and all that setup cost and equipment yeah. and yeah. gasoline and all that. But then this, this guy is a pretty successful DJ and he has this Instagram account, uh, Romantic DJ Dinner. So you don't have the camaraderie of a band, so you just sit and have dinner with other DJs. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, your, that's your net, or your sort yeah. of socializing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. DJing is a, is a pretty solitary gig. You yeah. rarely find like multiple DJs. And there was another theme on the podcast is sort of. Uh, so when, when transportation got more and more uh, electric and, and, and mechanical, people become unhealthier. So yeah. it, you invent the elevator and you don't have to walk the stairs right. and you invent the car and you don't have to walk. And so that contributed to obesity. And at the same time, I feel like there's this thing happening socially where malls are closing. So people, teenagers don't learn to go to social space with other people. They yeah. hang out online with face filters and can shut people out if they're uncomfortable. And so the same way now you have to make an effort to move, then you also have to make an effort to talk to people and learn how to do that. And yeah. if you, from an age five, just hardly ever talk to people. and uh, So you're going to be so awkward. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm very fascinated where the world is headed because I thought, thanks to the internet, the cities would become less important than the opposite happened. Right, yeah, yeah. that's true. And you know, a funny thought on that is as awkward as kids may be in face-to-face discussions and, you know, being able to interact with, like... You, you have know. a kid, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. How yeah. old? He's 11. Okay. So, but he's, you know, we he has a good balance. Okay. You know, he can do the internet and all that stuff, but it's limited, and he he's also plays music live, and, like, he has bandmates oh, okay. and stuff, so he, yeah, he gets out Yeah, maybe it's fine. I, I, but I, I just imagine... Uh, we would have to have statistics, but there were tons of statistics of... High levels of anxiety amongst the young people. Oh, it, yeah, yeah, it does create a feeling. I think that people are. But it's the exact same you. thing as the the fitness thing, where you have to. What what was normal in olden times that you would move your body, now you have to program that into your day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You have to go sit on a machine instead of like <laughs> lifting rocks up <laughs> yeah, on, yeah, yeah. to build a pyramid. Yeah, <laughs> lifting it up there, you just pull on us heavy weight and exactly it's yeah. really funny but what i was going to say is the um the awkwardness that kids may have in face-to-face interactions is reciprocated by the awkwardness of our parents or that generation trying to interact Try to text. on social media yeah. it's brutal so it's, i guess yeah, it goes like both it, ways it's funny when old people write text messages with the capitalization and yeah. uh, period points and sentence structure and an addressee and a, yeah yeah, and it gets even more awkward when they start throwing in the LOLs and the IRLs and all that stuff. Like, wait yeah. a minute, this isn't for you. I, I've, I've always wanted to make a work that makes you feel awkward looking at it, and, uh, or that you feel like you, that the work feels awkward and you, for that reason, feel awkward looking at it. Yeah. I don't know an example of that. There's, there's a lot of movies who do that. Yeah, really yeah, well. yeah. There's, there's the, 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 the Courbet painting of the woman spreading her legs and yeah, the, the origin of the world. That makes you feel strange when you're in the museum, but right. it, it doesn't feel like the woman is awkward. Right, yeah. yeah. So I you haven't feel seen it. It's the voyeuristic. But it's that thing in Ren and Stimpy, I think there's a scene where he does something stupid and all of a sudden the whole cast of Ren and Stimpy is behind him. Like <laughs> everyone who's ever in the in the show and he's just, his face is sweating and he's like, that feeling. Yeah, that show was so good. Yeah. There's always that kind of nervous sweat coming yeah, off yeah, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I tried doing... I long time ago made it, some websites with nervous sweat, but it just looked like glistening, and it didn't feel like the object felt awkward. Yeah, it's it's hard because certain mediums just yeah work for certain things that you have to try to get across. You know, yeah, yeah. that's why I love doing animation and painting because there's certain things paintings do really well as a still image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a vibe that you get from like seeing something projected huge that moves over time. And sound that and, you just yeah. can't get that in a painting. It's you know it's apples and oranges. Yeah. So that's why, you know. Yeah, and it's always interesting taking um, uh, energy of one meeting and trying to convert, like making a photo feel painterly or making a painting feel photographic. Yeah. Those are interesting starting points. Right, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of like using that other language. Yeah, yeah. Like um, impersonating, like a a comedian impersonating a cartoon character. Right, (laughs) which is usually good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When you were in art school, what were you doing then? I mean, how was like how did tech, the arc of technology correspond yeah. to the arc of you? Yeah, I was really. Uh, what was nice about the the computer in those days is that the, the computer was not online yet. Yeah. So, but there's less distraction, and uh, um, I started in the art school sort of a general base year and trying all the materials and. Uh, 
I was always interested in things that are reproducible, so the Xerox machine or silk screening or things like that. Yeah. And but then I was also interested in moving images, so I started playing around with video and stop motion. And I I even did that. Both my parents are artists, so it's always uh, f- uh, familiar with lots of materials, and uh, um, there was no block there, I guess. But so I made a lot of stop motion things and and little videos with friends when I was in high school, and I had a dark room developing photos and. Uh, so it didn't really feel like art school was that different from what I was doing before. Just maybe bigger, bigger uh, material, bigger photo lab, yeah. bigger video lab, better computer, things like that. And but then, maybe in the second year, I started playing around with the computer, making images and and learning that. And then I especially enjoyed making, learning Adobe Illustrator because I liked constructing images instead of. In Photoshop, it felt more like a, a clumsy way of drawing. And I liked putting points and then being able to move those points later and change everything. It's more architectural illustrator. Yeah, yeah. but it, 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 I always say that Photoshop felt more like playing with colored sand. And then if you mess around too much, all the sand starts to... Uh, and, and, and Illustrator felt more like drawing with rubber bands and nails. Oh yeah, and then you you can just move the nails around later, and uh, and I like small files. Yeah, vectors yeah. are nice. And then sense. we had a class learning uh, uh, Flash, and that was very logical when you like Adobe Illustrator, and the files were tiny, which was great because before I was making things in After Effects, and uh, all these software things are sort of arbitrary. It could have been another company or another software package or whatever, but. The the point being it was really about seeing the internet, seeing this window of uh, a space that had no gatekeepers. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, making things that work on the internet. Because I would make these animations uh, that were video-based, and then I would ask the teacher, how do I put this online? He's like, well, I use this compression software, and it would become so tiny and awful and such a reduction of what it was. And I thought, oh, I want to make things that fill the screen or fill any potential space. And so that was from the beginning, uh, the uh, the idea that I make moving images that adapt to any potential space because everybody's screen is different. And later that also became like they adapt to an exhibition space or to public space. Yeah. So I wanted these things that work at the size of a stamp but also work at the size of a building. So Flash works for that. Yeah, but it, I, I think the word flash is loaded now, but uh, just thinking line-based, uh, more like Solowit than um, like an, an old master who's making a very tiny, detailed painting, and it's always the size that it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you had some... There would be flexibility there. Yeah, yeah, flexibility. That's why I like the rubber bands analogy. That you, yeah, I yeah. started using Photoshop just as a way to... I would take pictures of paintings and then you know, paint bucket in different colors okay. to, to tweak things so I didn't have to tweak it on a large scale. Yeah. And then, you know, I got this, I had to make this big banner for a museum thing and they asked me to send an image and I sent, you know, a 72 DPI image. Oh, yeah, it was like yeah. five by Forget five by nine and they were like, we might need a higher yeah, resolution. Yeah. And then I talked to my friend who was a designer and he said, you should use Illustrator. Yeah. And then it went 
I had I'd never used it before, but it just totally went with the way that I okay. draw the paintings, you know. Yeah, but the like great thing is numbers. you could export it out at whatever yeah, yeah. size you want. Yeah. But in my animations, I still use After Effects because I like that haze. Okay. I don't want it to be so, you know, kind of like hard-edged yeah, so everywhere. I I like that there's something about things being too perfect that is yeah. uneasy to the eye. Right. And I like that. So th- I had a show in the state like where they had these five display monitors with my work repeated next to each other and you really needed sunglasses in that room it was it was really it was that bright, bright. it was uncomfortable and, and like a lot of works Matisse said something that he wanted his work to be like a, a sofa that you sit in and you feel comfortable in yeah and this was not that this room was awful like you, you're there it's it was too much you couldn't take it yeah yeah did you see that Terrence Coe piece at, uh, at the Whitney no where it was just, uh, he had a light in this small room on the first floor that was so bright. It oh. just looked like in movies when like God comes yeah, out or yeah, something. Yeah. When <laughs> was this? It was an assault on the on yeah. the retinas. I forget what year. It was a while ago. Okay. I, my memory. He kind of went off the map, huh? Yeah. And yeah. I saw, you know, when I showed in Berlin, uh, I walked around to the openings and he had a really great show up somewhere. At Perez or something. Maybe. Or maybe it was like a... A museum space or a different art space. I mm-hmm. think it was a Perez, but it was a big kind of installation. It was yeah. great, but yeah, he just kind of. I'm not sure what he's up to. Um, yeah, I don't know him. I don't know, but um, the. It, it was really important to me. I would go to art spaces in the Netherlands, and um, the Netherlands is a less market-driven art system and mm-hmm. a more uh, state-driven art system which has pros and cons. Um, and it resulted in a more a more emphasis on process and less emphasis on finished work, I think, and a more, more of an emphasis on things that can be um, discussed in committees because that's how dis- the decisions are made. Where yeah. a collector decision is often like, I like it, I want it. It's not much discussion. Right. And the, that sells. And this, the, 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 the subsidized system is more like you have a bunch of experts that sit together and they have to defend and later even they have to argue to their superiors why they made that decision. So they want to have a solid decision that can be defended. And so each it, it's like BBC and HBO. Like yeah. One is not better than the other. They just result in a different kind of content. And um, that being said, the exhibitions that I saw were all sort of pedantic and serious and I was that was not my state of mind and so I, I was like I will never be invited here so I better do my own thing on the internet right that was a big part of it it's like I, I don't see how they would like my work so I don't work in that venue so I'll just do my thing yeah, and make yeah, it work yeah. over yeah. here yeah and then the the interesting thing of the internet was it, it's immediately very non-local so you it gets emailed around and then the first exhibition I had was in Los Angeles when I was still in school. Uh, it, it, my first show was not in the town that I was working in. Right. Wasn't it home base, no, so to speak? No. So you have this weird... I think the internet is more local now. I think at the time it was just not that many people, so it was very spread out. Yeah. Yeah. So, but obviously, judging by your moving around and, you know sort of interacting in these different environments that I would imagine you like your work operating in these different environments as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, kind of I always a- like the idea that uh, the work travels and sometimes is seen in an explicit art context and sometimes is seen in public space. And then the internet itself is 
sort of public space, but you view it at home. Yeah. And so a lot of times the the, the and that word context is so loaded, but the, the the intention of the work is not clear. Like I've spoken to a lot of people who saw my work before they went to art school, and they didn't realize it was intended as art. They're just like, oh, I just saw this website with these things, shapes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, especially if because each of my works is in its own domain name, so they get sent around, and people don't know the homepage, so yeah, they don't know no the credit. other works, no. right? And so they just see something, and you have to decide for yourself, is this a meme, or is it art, or is it uh, research, is it technology, I don't know. Right. Well, I would imagine that the kind of understanding of of that web-based work as artwork has evolved and has become much more accepted than when... You know, kind of. digital art first kind of started coming out when I feel like galleries and museums mm. were like, "What do we do with this?" Stuff? I'm not sure because there's historically there's been from the beginning of the computer. MoMA had a digital art exhibition in the 60s. Mm-hmm. I think back then there was no public network like the internet, so you had to show it in art space. So back then maybe the 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 context was more specific. Yeah. Than now, there's no middleman in a way. It was kind of like the piece exists as a digital piece, but it's not yeah. floating around in this virtual yeah, yeah. world getting seen all over the place. Yeah, but um, I think there's a whole... When people talk about the acceptance of digital art, the people that talk about it often are not talking about the acceptance of digital art, but they're talking about the acceptance of themselves. So they're like, when am I going to be in? Oh, right, yeah. And so there's a ton of media artists who feel unaccepted or who are not uh, showing so much and then there's a ton of artists who are huge contemporary artists who use technology and algorithms but they don't even talk about that explicitly they're just right. contemporary artists and there happens to be there's a computer in the work but you don't even know and and basically they're, they're both working with algorithms but one is the, their whole identity is I work with computers and the other one is like I'm a contemporary artist and I work with elements of chance and uh, I work with images from public space. Or, yeah. Right, so that's how they're spinning it in a way. Yeah, or it's maybe the quality, of the, maybe their quality is better. But, yeah. yeah. No, I, I meant, I, well, not meant, but I, early on when I first started showing animations, I just remember people not knowing what, like how it operates because yeah. in the art world there's a, like yeah, this archival thing. Yeah, but that's also your age. Thing. That's also your age. You were you young. I'm old. <laughs> No, but I'm, good. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I think there were tons of people working. Robert Rauschenberg worked with moving images, and yeah. uh, I don't think anyone was questioning whether that was art because he was a famous painter. Yeah, not so much and, that and it's Warhol art. And Warhol was showing uh, his know, films. Yeah, 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 and I think a lot of people even think his films are more art than his paintings. Right. So, um, I th- I don't see the art world having any prejudice against technology no it's not a prejudice i'm just talking about like what to do with it as far as like the medium of it you know what i mean and what no i I think that's a budget question i do too yeah yeah and i think screens have gotten cheaper yeah so i remember when i was like oh my god we have a thousand lumens projector that's so luxurious and now no one would show they're crazy now you can get a pico that's like yeah 20 times stronger than the thing we used seven years ago so you can really make it part of the installation and the and and make it a rich experience and uh, but the the history of moving images in art is is well before the internet yeah yeah 
Were you uh, really into like old cartoons and yeah, yeah. you know like the, remember the dot and the line? Yeah, well, and I was really into Looney Tunes and uh, yeah, Betty Boop and things like that, and yeah. Yeah, and do you like and those South old Park. Hans Richter films? You know those kind of kind stop of. motion yeah, surrealist. I, I, what's the other guy? Um, Egling, Viking Egling. Do you no. know his? The Bauhaus animator, who then moved to Hollywood and also made an f- abstract film with MGM. Kind Fishinger, of. Oscar oh, Fishinger. Oh, yeah, 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 Oscar Fishinger, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. I mean, that stuff was really avant-garde. Like, people must have, who've seen that, were like, what the hell is yeah, this yeah, stuff? Yeah, 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 Because it's so yeah. different. But it's it's funny that uh, in exhibition making that... Uh, it's still, if you have an exhibition of the Bauhaus, the moving image is not a big part of that, how people remember the right. Bauhaus. But it was part of it. It was very much so, yeah. yeah. I think it added a whole different kind of element and feeling to that stuff. I think we're all... It's, it's really hard to grasp how much the art world has expanded if you compare it to... The, it, it's so much. It's installation and performance, and then it's popular culture, and it's academic culture, and it's... Uh, solitary, but it's also large corporate structures, and it, it and then people want to define it and say like, no, art is a painter sitting by him or herself. No, art is people with ideas who gather large groups of people. No, art is confrontation. No, art is tranquility. Or yeah, right. Yeah, everyone always wants to define things, but the beauty yeah. is, is now that it's all being seen and made. You know what I mean? Yeah. So as much as someone might want to define it as this, yeah, that, or the but other. The, the audience has grown so much. If I speak to older artists, what the audience was in the 60s is oh, yeah. so limited. Well, just think about the gallery scene back then. It was like yeah. 14 spaces or something in the village. Yeah, but it might return to that. Do you think it would ever would? Well, there's all this speculation of the the middle tier of galleries closing, and then you end up with five big galleries controlling everything. And maybe that's the same way it was in the 60s. You, you had Castelli, and that was it. Yeah. They keep saying that, but they're still emerging in yeah, yeah, yeah. middle tier galleries. Yeah. I mean, there's so many galleries that if yeah, yeah. So if half of them went away, there'd still be so many. So galleries. many more than Castelli. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, and then that was also the the dynamic shift. There would have been there weren't as many artists back then. I would imagine. No, I mean, exactly. Yeah. No. There's a lot of artists, but you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, history is tough when you don't have any data, so it's it's hard right? to say. Like, th- there's. I've read that in the 17th century in the Netherlands, oil painting was a big hobby. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't just the Dutch masters; was, everybody was doing it. It was like Instagram, where people just would put them up in their window. You walk by the window and see, like, oh, they yeah. made a painting. Uh, but I don't know what evidence there is of that. It's, right, uh, it's hard to measure. Maybe if you dig around some thrift stores and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see like all these old paintings. Yeah, but it, um, there was no photo camera. So yeah. yeah. Well, what is? Do you feel? The sensibilities of growing up, like culturally, have in, in influenced your work and the way that you see and create. I mean, you have a very distinct, um, interesting cultural, you know, DNA. Can you summarize the question? Like, is do you feel like your environment culturally growing up has affected the way that you make work? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I and especially the transition from. Netherlands-based and sort of traveling to being based in New York for a longer time, it was a shift in the sense that, uh, this is my theory, Um, in the Netherlands, 
of course, there was a golden age where you learned that there were the masters, so you had Rembrandt and uh, all the people around it, and the, they're unbelievable. So good luck being a figurative painting in the Netherlands now, because it's right. like, it's not as good as Rembrandt, so yeah. fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> then after that, Van Gogh starts painting a little wilder, and then Mondrian comes along and then makes the most absolute abstract paintings. And then how dare you make abstract paintings after him? And so it, it kind of felt like that. Uh, and, and then in the U.S., art history just basically started in the 50s. Before that, it was kind of copies of European stuff. Yeah, That's a little bit, uh, and not discussing Native American art, but um, it was a fresh start. So people were like, yeah, some people in Europe did some stuff, but we're really going to do it. Right. And so that was nice growing up, being here for seven years, this sort of, feeling of like oh we've just had a hundred years of abstract art this is only the beginning yeah and instead in the netherlands it always felt like and and my theory is that the dutch institutions don't have the budget to keep up with the art market for the last 30 years or even longer but they have a huge collection of mondrian and malevich by chance they have a lot of russian work yeah so they have all these examples of the invention of abstraction and it's an amazing collection better than anywhere in the world so you start to think like, oh yeah, those were the glory days and it's over. And that really changed being here for me. Yeah. That, oh, it, it, that a lot of interesting things happened after 1950. Right. Yeah. Well, um, and did you, do you have an interest in Brazilian art? Yeah, and I, I saw more of that here. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, because there's such a, you know, a vibrancy to a lot of it, but then yeah. you have the concretists who were like, well, I knew, I knew a lot about the Brazilian architecture. My, my mom studied architecture and going to Brazil, that it was very familiar with Brazilian modernism in architecture yeah. and a sort of more sensual and playful modernism with different weather and different materials. Northern European modernism is like the cheapest possible materials and very functional and kind of cold and removed. Yeah. It's depressing. And um, the, the the combination of cold weather and steel is it's a bit much. Right. And it's so funny that it just so reflects the sensibility of the people in a way. I did see once this tweet. There's a Bauhaus font that uh -huh. is like uh, it's all straight lines and circles, and that became the porn font for titles of movies in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> so you never know where modernism goes. <laughs> yeah. That seems like an unlikely destination. Yeah, I think the Boogie Nights <laughs> title is in that font. Yeah, but um, so visiting other countries, I know a lot of Dutch artists who visit other countries and kind of like it, but put up this protect self protection and start saying, "Well, yeah, it's good, but it's not that original." Never mind. And being here for for a longer period changed the, a lot for me. Yeah. yeah. Did you come in with a little bit of that? Yeah, I, I think there's something about Dutch people. I also see here. I'm going to say stupid generalizations, but there's something about coming from a country that is very well functioning mm -hmm. and it is more fair than other countries are more egalitarian. And then yeah. it's very easy to go to other countries and say you guys are inefficient, you guys are unfair, blah 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 blah. But you'll see the people from those cold countries travel all the time because they're missing something. Right. Efficiency is yeah. not very romantic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and romance sometimes yeah. isn't efficient. And so I, I start cringing already about these sort of cultural generalizations, but it's hard to talk without doing that. So it's... Uh, it, but from my own experience, that was sort of this... Before I would visit and, and sort of put a wall between me and, and the other work and 
but that might also be growing up. Yeah. So one of the things I learned here is there's a lot of work that I don't like more than that I do like, but I've been trying to appreciate work for its um, going far in any direction. Yeah, I've really like turned a curve on that, and I think. Yeah. But that's maybe just growing up. I think it's just getting older too, because yeah. when I talk to a lot of older, yeah, yeah, but there's something. Maybe my point about New York is like if you live. Here's the thing: you live in the Netherlands, and then they have top pieces of the 17th century. They have amazing collections of the 18th, 19th century. They have amazing works of the early 20th century. But then the more current work, they don't have the budget or the, you know, it's a smaller town. So you yeah. don't get to see all the best pieces. And you, they're not going to have a, a show of Brazilian modernism. It's kind of far away. So you might see a few pieces, but not see the whole story. Right. And then being here, you see the whole st research of, of a movement that you might not be interested in initially. But because you see the whole trajectory and maybe see four or five exhibitions instead of just one, then you start to appreciate all the decisions that were made and all the things that happened. And, uh, and so I do think that's that question, like, should I move to New York to make it? It's like it might not even help you make it, but it will help you see a lot of other work and understand it more deeply yeah. than, than you would in books. It's a real shifted dynamic because there's the idea, like, that a country that's kind of hermetic, like my extended family is from yeah. Japan and it's an island nation which has yeah. a very specific culture and sensibility. You know what I mean? Yeah, I love There's something Japan. really yeah. beautiful about that. Yeah. But it's also uh, can be xenophobic or it can be kind of like cut off from the yeah, rest yeah, of... Yeah. But then you come to New York and there's so much. There's Yeah, it, 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 there's a danger. So I think Philadelphia is maybe for American listeners a better example where Philadelphia was a very wealthy city mm -hmm. and then they... What's the museum, the Irons collection that they have there? The Barnes. Is it the Barnes? Yeah. The, the, where they have all the top modernist pieces. Matisse, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Barnes. So that's a good example of an institution that got funded in, in a certain era that was very prosperous. Yeah. And now Philadelphia is not such a hot spot. So they're not following the current trends. Right. So if you, maybe if you grow up in Philadelphia, you're exposed to all these glory days and you start thinking... Oh, every, everything that was amazing happened then, and right now is not so amazing. Right. That's maybe what I'm saying. And uh, Japan is a whole other story. Of, right. Uh, it, I, I had a show there, and one of the museum directors told me very briefly to explain it that uh, Japan had its own art history but was not so focused on unique objects. Then they started collecting Western art, but they only collected top pieces. And so they had the bubble economy, and they did so well so they could buy Van Gogh. Then they bought all the top pieces, but the art market as a whole kind of crashed. And after that, the wealthy class decided art is not a great investment. So they don't collect as much as other countries with that amount of wealth, mm -hmm. but they have incredibly high museum attendance. So it's a very visually sensitive, culturally sensible country that is eager to absorb culture. Right. But at the same time, they never supported their own artists. They're like, I want a top piece, and they would buy a Western artist. And they, it's not like Eli Broad, where he meets Jeff Koons at the right moment and grows with Jeff Koons. Yeah. Um, well, I think in Japan, uh, historically, um, the things that are quote-unquote art are more everyday. I, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's integrated into day-to-day -day life, like yeah, a yeah. cup that you're drinking tea out of and you know, the kimono that's made, or whatever it is, the, the yeah. architecture, the design, and, and it's less of like that one object. That's like a Western sensibility that yeah, was yeah. imported and for a little while. And there's a whole thing of a... Um, I think historically, 
we'll always look at the most powerful moments as history in history, and then we'll look at that art. So we we'll look at Egyptian art and Greek right. art at the peak of their power. Roman Empire, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, if the 20th century was uh, the century that America had the most economic power, uh, then all the other countries are following those models of like, oh, let's have a concrete floor and white walls, but it turns out the spaces in Japan are just smaller, so yeah. it's not easy to show a Pollock. Right. And there's it's a reason that, for that. Yeah, there's a reason that after Europeans came to the U.S., all of a sudden it was possible to make bigger works. Yeah. And, and, and it's not in the nature of, of Europeans to just splash paint onto a canvas because they're too cerebral and we're used to really small spaces. And then Americans are like, oh, fuck it, I got a big barn. Let's, yeah. let's just, and then you, you get then you get a new chapter. Yeah. Right. And I mean, so now it might be a century of, of incredible skill Chinese works. Yeah. Yeah, or digital work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, it, it does seem like nowadays everything happens at the same time. Like yeah. Tiny work and big work. and uh, Right. It's kind of more open. Yeah. Maybe history is written in a way that they'll make it look like this was what was happening. That's true. It's, yeah, it's hard to see the forest from the trees. Yeah, I, I do think uh, whether you like Jeff Koons or not, if, if you think where is the world headed economically and which artist captured the spirit of the times, then if, if, you, he might be it, if, yeah. if you agree that there's, uh, the rich are getting richer and, and who made art that reflects that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, perfect, right? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of people in hindsight who really don't like Warhol but would be perfectly willing to say that yeah he captured that kind of era of pop yeah. you know yeah some of the it's it's like the of people consumer you culture like Britney yeah. Spears may not be everyone's favorite but that really defined the area of the era of the late yeah. 90s you know what I mean yeah and then there's tons of examples in art history of weird solitary people like Morandi or um, the other one but it just like almost outsider artists that just work by themselves frenetically in one way of working and it it was relevant to the times as well yeah in a different way and it's so fun to find those people yeah like you know that that we're working outside the the center you know forget the name who's the guy who just endlessly painted still lives the italian artist and he just did everything in his bedroom italian still lives he's he's reshaping he just puts these vases in different arrangements and it's almost abstract well i just keep thinking miranda Oh, it is Miranda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's him. No, yeah. I was confused. With you mean in the pale, yeah, pale yeah. tones? and yeah, yeah, those are beautiful paintings. Yeah, but let's say Miranda. Like, how much is he an artist who captured the time? I don't know. I don't know, but I, even now in art school, people talk about Miranda and show yeah. Miranda. It's such a great... Well, kind of, I think one of the roles of art is fundamental research. Yeah. And I think that's fundamental research. Yeah. Away from narrative. Right. Yeah. There's so many artists who don't feel that way, though. So how do you well, feel? Well, yeah, I think now the current generation, obviously we're in a, in a moment of great upheaval. Yeah. And then people think, well, why would I just play with form? Like, how is that going to help anyone? And, so they, and, and then you get into this point, is like, art has to be helpful. Do you think we're in upheaval, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, compared I, to, I, like, I, any I, time in history? It, it's funny, like... Um, how the news and data and things are kind of abstract but there are these moments that you really feel it and um, there's a painter 
with my gallery here in New York, and he has an old loft space in Tribeca. Mm -hmm. And he's been there since the 60s. And what happened was he had the top floor of the building, and at the time it was 50 bucks a month, and maybe by now it's 800 bucks a month. But it's gigantic. It's like seven times this space. Mm -hmm. And the landlord wanted to live on the top floor, so the landlord says, I'll buy you out. And I'll buy an equal-sized apartment in, somewhere in Tribeca. I just want to live in the top floor. And he's like, no, the, the, the fees, the monthly fees would be more than my rent. There's no gain right. for me. So the, the landlord was willing to spend millions on another loft, but he's like, no. And then finally he put him up in another building of the landlord on an equal amount size space, but with new interior. So he put in a brand new kitchen and bathroom. Mm -hmm. And he's paying 1100 a month. So I was visiting him. And I was like, wow. And... I'm living in a space that's maybe 10 times smaller and the rent is three times more. Yeah. And that's when you feel like, okay, th this is what it means deregulating the market and unfair treatment of people with this. Like, everything aside, like, okay, you really felt it there, like the difference of things like student loans and things like yeah. cost of living. And uh, there's a reason minimalism happened and they could make those large-scale works it's like they had the space mm -hmm. yeah and there's a reason maybe now new media art fits our times because we don't have the space yeah yeah and it's becoming the way that people communicate more and more you yeah. Know? yeah both visually and yeah. you know literally um but is that what you meant by upheaval i thought you meant more of like world upheaval of no what, what i mean is that you're slowly getting squeezed out oh and right so right, this okay. feeling of like it's it's subtle it's every year there's like Oh, the cost of living goes up. Yeah. Who do I vote for? Right, right. You know, and then, uh, but what I mean with upheaval is that that's maybe what I mean is that you grow up with upward social mobility and all mm -hmm. of a sudden there's downward social mobility. <laughs> You're like, hey, my parents had a bigger house then. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. It, that gets flipped. And then you, yeah. though, your whole life you've been told, like, well, this is what you work for. Just this work is, hard. And, yeah. This is the ladder. That yeah, you yeah, climb, yeah, yeah. but what now the ladder's facing down. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? But but um, my point being is, uh, um, if we are living in stressful times, and uh, it feels like a lot of artists want to make work that is useful, mm -hmm. and I find that very strange. It kind of counterintuitive. And to I what don't art see is. that with music. I think with music, it's still fine to make experiences that are. Uh, emotional and and not pedantic, yeah, and personal and, and I mean some artists write really political lyrics, but in general, I think it's fine. People don't think it's it's indulgent to make work that is not useful. But in art, I feel like a lot of people have this tension of like, I'm going to make, I'm just going to play with material and then. Rich people are going to buy it. And then, How selfish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No one says like, you read a pop song, you selfish son of a... Yeah, but it's a different distribution. <laughs> no, definitely. No one's yeah. getting rich off that. You know? No, but not even the, the question of wealth, but the clients are not of a different economic class. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's when it started with the internet. I was like, why would I want old rich people to decide what I make? Right. That's really true. But I mean, that that's where art was before... You know, photography, and you know, in a way, it was much more accessible back in the day, and then it became sort of self-referential and conceptual, and no, I, turned I, in on itself. I yeah, and I, I think there's there's tons of widely distributed work throughout history that was lost because 
only the the top works that the the most valuable works were kept in archives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there might be, Egyptians might have had comic books too. It's true. And 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 in medieval times there might have been popular writing and, and illustration and in a piece of papers that were di- distributed that disappeared and medieval zines. Yeah. They yeah. got lost. Yeah. In the yeah, fold. yeah. 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 I'm sure. Yeah, and it's hard to. Well, how do you, how do you negotiate, or how do you feel about the fact that um, digital technology has changed the way we archive things too, in a way, right? Or is it the same sort of structure? Yeah, I, I think. Um, um, I think my work was always already meant meant as that the work itself is an archival entry. So a, a website is, is uh, in a sense, a, a database entry. And that was the point in the beginning, that I wasn't making uh, physical work and then documenting. There's no step of documenting. The work itself is the documentation and vice versa. So, so you so, kind of circumnavigate that whole yeah, process. Yeah. So that was the idea. It was basically the idea that everybody was making websites with documentation, and I would, wanted to make things that were made for the website. Right. Yeah, that changed now that I also make installations and other objects. But uh, that was the idea for the websites. Yeah. Do you want to talk about some of those? I mean, some of these installs that I haven't seen in person are pretty impressive. And yeah, um, how do you approach that differently than work? I mean, obviously there's the space and yeah, it was always the the idea of um, when I make work for the browser, I do what's possible in the browser, and mm-hmm. when I make work in the space, I do what's possible in the space. And sometimes the space lends itself to just a simple single-channel projection, and that's enough. And sometimes uh, uh, I want to do different things. So I started working with mirrors on the floor together with projections sort of to m- amplify and multiply the space. Because um, I like the idea of a reflective surface doubling the image and, and creating it. Uh, part of it was that when you view web-based works at home, you kind of disappear into the work and forget about the device. Yeah. Uh, but then when you go to a gallery and you put a laptop on a pedestal, it becomes a sculpture. Yeah, it's an object. Yeah, anyway. and you get distracted and you don't disappear into the work. So the the idea with creating environments is that you disappear into the work and uh, it's all around you. Um, so I, I always saw every show as a as a way to test the next idea. Um, and then you know it, the first slide you saw was uh, uh, broken mirrors on the floor I, I started breaking them to make it look like all the mirrors are one big space and not all these separate mirrors mm-hmm. but then you scrolled down a little bit um, this space was so huge and it lent itself it had these very tall walls so then the walls are quite high compared to the size of the space so then I came arrived at the idea of tilting the projector 90 degrees. So to have vertical projections and work with repetition. So sometimes I'll work with repetition and sometimes I'll have the same algorithm. Just to make it... These are these things that are very easy when you see the picture and it's hard in a podcast. But if if you imagine my websites being an an algorithm that generates an infinite image. Mm -hmm. So every time you run the website, it's a little different. It's a bit like uh, looking at a waterfall. So a waterfall is kind of always the same, but never repeats itself. Yeah. 
And so if you run the same website on three laptops next to each other, you'll see three different versions of the same algorithm. And that's what I like to do in, in shows. Yeah. So if you scroll down a little bit more, uh, that's the idea here. It's the same website, but in five different instances. So you, you're constantly getting like yeah, a different read because there's, there's something in computation that it's very interesting when you're making it. And the idea of, of randomness is very fascinating. Yeah. But then when you show it to people, they can't tell whether it's a 24 hour video or it's a live algorithm. Yeah. And they're, they're two very different things, but it's hard to perceive. And when you show the same algorithm five times next to each other, then you start to feel that more, that idea of randomness. Definitely. I did a, um, an animation, a generative animation of a nighttime city. Yeah. And different windows would be going off. It was in Flash, and it yeah. would just, it was infinite. You know, yeah, it would yeah, just yeah. constantly but be different. But it's one of those things that's super no, fun. No it, one would know. No one got it. No. <laughs> like, no one knew if it was like a five-minute loop or a 20-minute loop yeah. or if it was infinite. Yeah. So what was really exciting to me in the, the concept of it, I think, was lost in the... In the in the, in the projection, yeah, people just come in and be like, "Oh, yeah." I, I do think um, I, I have a few animations of water, and I had one in an exhibition, and I remember someone looking at it and just waiting for the looping point, and he asked me, "Where's the loop?" And I'm like, "There's no loop." Isn't that and funny? Then, now that people just expect, it. It. yeah, yeah. When's the glitch out where it stops for a second and yeah, kicks back yeah, in? Yeah, but there's something about creating this thing that will never repeat itself. That's a, fascinating yeah but i do know that there are curators and collectors who understand that and they yeah yeah, it's a bit like maybe the same with painting like people will understand that the color was built up out of layers which other people won't see glazing and yeah but but you feel it and you're like oh that color has has something deep about it i can't explain why yeah or like a good broth and it's like oh yeah, you yeah. don't know exactly what went into the stew, but you, yeah. you can taste. There's yeah, like yeah, more yeah. than 20 herbs or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Hopefully the people just get it. You yeah. Know? Whether it's conscious or unconscious. Yeah. But so um, some artists, this is a question. Some artists are very specific when they make a moving image that it always has to run on a certain hardware and a certain size. So it almost becomes like a sculpture. Yeah. So no, this work is 60 inches, period. Even if TVs get bigger... I'm not this gonna, is what it is. This is what it is. And so a lot of old video work is shown on those Sony cube monitors. Oh, yeah, the Namjoon pack stuff. <laughs> yeah, and not even him so much because he would actually modify the cube. And that's true, but, they were sculptural. But there are other pieces who, that are videotapes, but they always have to be shown on that monitor specifically. Right. And I always had the idea that the internet is flexible. I don't control how it's seen. And so I, one of the things that's interesting... Physical works deteriorate, so we know that pigments degrade over time and uh, paint medium starts to crack and wooden sculptures are going to break and and have little tears and and, and, uh, bronze will change its color. These are things that we've learned through the centuries um, and we've accepted that charm. It even makes it look more classy that it's kind of broken. I love an old guitar where it's worn in, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and the idea that with digital work, with my work, and back to that idea of, of rubber bands, that it's it's free of resolution, is that um, the hardware keeps getting better, yeah, and so the 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 rendering of the work keeps getting better, and so it's the opposite of deterioration. It, the over time, Apple just released a new monitor that is 
super high res and an incredible contrast ratio. So then I can show my work on a monitor that bef- it's better than before. Yeah. It's very simple. So that's why I don't want to fix or specify any hardware and say this work was made in 2006 it has to be shown on a monitor from 2006. I mean that would negate for me the thing I love the most about showing the animations is I can show it on a small screen or I could project it on the side yeah. of a building somewhere. But there are there, there are other net artists who say this work was made for a specific kind of scroll bar in that browser and uh, it was made for an 800 by 600 pixel screen it, it, it doesn't scale and that's fine too. Yeah. But my the way I work is that it, uh, it's an instruction that is, is re-executed every time you run the, the website. And yeah. over time, it gets better. And that's, that's very, very interesting to me. That uh, I, I can't think of other art objects that improve over time in that way. What do you feel about... Um, I mean, the web is probably... Or not the web, but certain aspects of the way we're using digital technology now, of course, is going to be antiquated, you know, or, or it yeah. could be. I yeah, mean, I, I, I use this term that you you have the era of software where it's alive and there's an era when it becomes an antique. Mm-hmm. And when you think of old video games, at some point they become antiques and then some people will want to play Pong on the original arcade machine and some people will recode Pong for the Apple Watch and you can right. play it on that. Um so the idea that um, some people say you know, it's, it's hardware specific and it has to be played on that and, and some things migrate and change over time. So I think the internet, like maybe at some point uh, we don't even use screens anymore. And then what I'm trying to say is that once a, mich- a, a digital work goes from al- alive to antique, then the physical exhibition of it becomes more important for it to survive right the same way now old video games are for a narrower group it's for for enthusiasts yeah it's not just for everybody and the the large audience will will play the games on the current uh, hardware but there's some enthusiasts that keep the old hardware alive yeah like my son will play donkey kong on a simulator but he yeah. doesn't know the beauty of that stand-up arcade game yeah yeah and the knob and just you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah but then it's just nostalgia for me yeah, but then it's always with art. It's like, oh, what is the real work? Right. And, and like, oh, you, you have to listen to the Beatles in mono. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's interesting stuff. Well, do you, do you I, have... I think a... there's an analogy with music. Where, um, so I feel like with websites, you view them at home and then you see them in exhibition and then you see them in public space. And there's no ultimate instance of the work that is the work. And that's the same with music, that... Of course, it's really fun to see a band live in a stadium, but that's even more fun if you've listened to them at home right? and you're familiar with it. And sometimes you you might have the perfect stereo at home and that's the best way to listen to it, but sometimes you're in a rental car, but the scenery is so great that it adds to the song. So Mm -hmm. it's not the perfect sound system for that song, but the the moment is great. Yeah, and it's a gift to have those different experiences, to be able to experience it in different ways. It would be so boring if it was just one way that you experience it. Yeah, but a lot of of, uh, moving image-based art, the the artists are very specific, and it has to be seen in this way and no other way. Yeah. Yeah. Are you interested or done any VR stuff? No. I I don't like VR at all. Um, And I hope to be convinced otherwise, but I've never seen anything in VR that I've found... 
it, it, some stuff is impressive. You're like, oh, the technology's moving forward. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I, 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 would mu- I would much rather have a holodeck than a VR helmet. Let's put it that way. What's a holodeck? That's the Star Trek thing where they go into this entertainment room. It's oh, like it's a, like a 3D re- like yeah, experience. Yeah, right. and so when it comes to making exhibitions... Uh, when you think of sound art, would you rather have a Walkman or would you rather have like speakers all around you and a space you can walk right. through? Yeah. And I think it's the same for VR. I think VR is a home thing, not a public space thing. Yeah. So uh, maybe when VR is really widely adopted, uh, then I would be interested. But I think VR in an exhibition space, that's like creating a little room inside a big room. Right. Uh, which could be interesting, but... It is like a Walkman. And like, why would you have a Walkman in an exhibition when you can have sound all around? Well, what about not necessarily in an exhibition, but just in and of itself? The adoption of VR is so small. Um, I don't know if you remember, PlayStation had a thing called the iToy. Mm-hmm. It was a webcam. Um, and it, sort of like the before the Wii, that you could use your body to... Yeah, it would like look the, at you and move based yeah. on what you did. And they canceled it because there weren't any game people. It, it just wasn't taking off. But they sold more of those iToys than they sold of the PlayStation VR. That's how low VR adoption is. Mm-hmm. That being said, here I go again defining things and things might change around and I might love it. But Well, it might mutate into something totally different yeah. too. But like, um, the other thing is I don't really, so far I'm not so into three-dimensional space in my work. So Yeah. I, I'm interested actually in the opposite and making things super flat. So, yeah. Yeah, I just it it feels like I've never been interested in it, and then I went to speak at a university that had like a VR lab. Yeah. It was sponsored by Google, and I did some things there, and I was like, wow, this is actually pretty interesting. But it was way better than anything that I've seen. Like in yeah, I've seen some demos that things. were technically very impressive. Yeah. But I I don't like 3D movies either. So not, yeah, not, yeah, me neither. Not yeah. every new technology is awesome. It's um, like how could you say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, when when um, like that new Apple screen, if that becomes a standard and and screens be- get bigger and brighter and more contrast, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I think it's time for quality of of image and sound to improve. Like we've been able to miniaturize things, and maybe now it's time to improve on the quality right but uh, yeah i just don't have a natural tendency to for vr I, i'm also i've never really been into video games either yeah i mean i never spent a lot of time on video no. i mean back when i was a kid i played galaga okay yeah i <laughs> and played a like little that, tetris you know? and, yeah, yeah things like that but yeah none of these games that the kids are playing now yeah the kids <laughs> yeah 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 but um i understand it's a big part of the world yeah yeah. What about music? What do you? What were you into when you were younger, and what are you into now? And um, has it played a big role in your life? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it, it started with Nirvana. Like that. That was the first band that, or maybe my first CD or something like that. Yeah. And then the sort of the that whole wave of '90s alternative, mm-hmm. and then going to festivals and having long hair and all these things. Yeah. And then, um, then. It, I would be like, oh, I like the most aggressive songs of these bands. And then you discover Slayer, and then uh, then the whole world opens up of... Uh, the dark arts, you went into yeah. like the metal. But you just try to find the most aggressive music possible. And then 
punk and hardcore and metal and then black metal and then you with black metal it was also the 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 whole world around it of like oh these people are so aggressive and they they murder each other mm-hmm. so that makes the listening experience more intense right but then when streaming came along in mp3s there wasn't the barrier of, of buying music so before you always had to make a decision is this worth 20 bucks right am but i going to commit to yeah, this yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's like oh i can listen to this and that, and that. so i i would say still two-thirds of my music is uh, metal uh, punk and uh, that realm but then there's also classical music and electronic music and uh, uh but always a uh, I'm always interested in sort of melancholy and aggression, mm-hmm. some of that space in between, even in classical music. Well, yeah. classical is pretty dark. And yeah, 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 yeah. There's themes going, and there's a lot of electronic. Remember that scene, like Atari Teenage Riot and stuff like that? It was mm-hmm. like really hard, like yeah, electronic stuff. I wasn't so into that, but I like this sort of... Uh, um, there's a lot of metal bands also that made weird keyboard songs, and then I was into that. Like Mor- was, Morbid Angel made a lot of keyboard songs, and then a lot of black metal bands make this ambient music. And uh, yeah, I always thought that metal. I mean, I didn't go into black metal or that dark, but I always yeah. felt like metal was so caricature of gothiness and darkness that it became almost. Yeah, it's this weird fine line where it's dark. like, is this a joke or is it real? Right. Yeah. Whereas like bands like Shellac, I felt like were really hard. Like that's yeah. hard. Yeah, but it, there's something about um, uh, it, there's something about the whole metal subculture that I think it was never cool. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, grunge was cool, like it, it, in the beginning. Yeah, like, but Metallica, that's metal, and that was like as big as it gets. Yeah, yeah, but it was it, it was not for cool people. It wasn't trendy. Oh, or, I see what you mean. Like, yeah, yeah. like the way New Order is cool. Right. Or, or the way Joy Division is cool, or the way post-punk was very sort of yeah. self-conscious and, and intellectual and right. literary references and things like that. Uh, and metal is in this weird zone where it's it's about primal energy, uh, but it's also for idiots. Yeah, it's for burnouts and like losers. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. And that's I like something. Yeah, but um, it doesn't make a lot of sense with my work. Where I'm like, I always want to be at the. With my work, I want to go where. Towards the future and uh, more than in music. Yeah, like I can imagine you listening to like Mouse on Mars or Oval or bands yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, Oval can get pretty hard too. Actually, I don't know them. Do you know it's uh, Marcus Pop is German guy. He does like he builds software to create the sounds and oh, stuff, okay. and it's really aggressive. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know, I, but there's a lot of uh, glitch sort of music that, in terms of volume and and annoyance, it's very aggressive. Yeah, but then you don't have the the aspect of the the song and the the composition. So you don't have the the catchiness of the riffs, right? And uh, and you don't have the idea of of a build up. And uh, it's we went to a Ryoji Ikeda performance, yeah. And that was just torture. It was just too long. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, brutal, right? It was probably long too. Well, but there's brutal and there's brutal. And so if 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 you don't have that that uh, that hook that gets you in and that sort of a sense of uh, yeah, it's hard to explain. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. 
There's a guy, Nobukazu Takamura. He's a Japanese composer, and he okay. does some electronic stuff that flirts between the two. That is okay. pretty, yeah. pretty great. Yeah. It's been a while. But I, I've become more... Pri- I used to always share songs I was listening to, and now it's, it's kind of... It, it's funny, because you, you grow up, and then um, as a teenager, music is very important to form your identity and right. who your friends are. And then I was like... At some point, I'm gonna have to grow up and like live with other people, and I can't listen to this music. Right. Like, I'm gonna have a wife, and then she's not gonna like this music. And cute girls don't like this kind of music. Yeah. And, um, but I never grew out of it. But a lot of my friends grew out of it. Like at some point, you're like, oh no. I, I Did you have to pretend like put on some Marcos Valle just to pretend <laughs> like you're? <laughs> no, but I do like maybe when there are guests, I play movie soundtracks or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like sharing music that much. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's my point. And I, even when I work, I'll put songs on repeat. And so I never, I was never able to share a studio for that reason. Oh, I'm such a sharer. Like when I teach studio classes, oh. I just play music and I talk about music. I love it. No. This is like this language where you can kind of, yeah. like, you know. Just and then I, I also like a lot of music that is made by people that you shouldn't listen to. And then, yeah, you know, like, that can be awkward. I mean, like if you really like Charles Manson's music, and then, uh, yeah, how do you defend that? And uh, yeah, remember earlier you're talking about you want to make people uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. your yeah. <laughs> just get yeah. But um, um, I don't know if there's a, a segue of a connection between music. But I, I think what always interested or what I found very strange was like, growing up with music, and then knowing that. People make music for for fans of their own age. That's how you start out. Mm-hmm. So the Rolling Stones did not play for sixty year olds yep. when they began. Now they play for sixty year olds, so it makes sense. Right. But artists make work, and then the people who can support them are much older. Yeah. And that's very strange. It is. And the curators are older than you. And um, I mean, really, when you're eighteen, is it's very strange. And some people have a personality where they're like they're twelve and they're already into Joseph Boyce and. But I was into comics, and uh, right, I think uh, that's few and far between. Yeah, so it's, it, and I do like that sort of heady aspect of the art world, especially in these times where uh, everything is like an Instagram opportunity, and then it is nice to have a, a sort of gatekeepers that keep things a bit more solid. But uh, when I started, I found that very strange that there was this distribution on one side of infinite distribution of music and then the art world was all about unique objects and because it's unique objects uh, they have to be expensive because you can only make 20 pieces a year and if you want to survive then the price is more than an average person can spend and then that this completely changes the dialogue the culture around it the the way people talk the way people dress all because of that unique object focus yeah, but the universality of music is there. It's just one could argue that the executives, the record executive, I mean, that's kind of gone now. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Record labels, the promoters, the concert people, yeah. those were all old dudes too. Those weren't yeah, yeah, like yeah. young people. Same with movies. Movies are it's out still, there for kids, but it's all old I, guys. I always making think those of decisions. something like uh, when you think of uh, a band like The Cure, which nobody would label as a frivolous pop band. Right. They were important. Yeah. Um, the amount of listeners compared to uh, even the amount of people that are aware of someone like uh, Jack Goldstein, which is a similar state of mind as The mm-hmm. Cure, I think. 
it's, it's very, I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but they're both like innovators in a certain field and, and working with a certain mood that I think is in a similar area. Um, but then the way Jack Goldstein maybe resurfaces is that maybe 20 people own his work. Mm -hmm. That's very different than the fan base of The Cure. Yeah, that, I think it's like just... the, the control of, of the visibility of the artist is in the hands of those 20 people. Like you can't show that work without the permission of those 20 people. Right. It's like theater, like Broadway versus a major motion picture because only yeah. certain people can afford that. But it's still so much broad. I think, and I, I, it's also almost like the savior of art because now movies and everything are headed in such a direction that they have to appeal to a global audience. Yeah. So you have to make stories for eight year olds. And that make a ton of money. Yeah, yeah, the but the, but the, the 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 distribution dictates the tone of voice of the work. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and it, with artwork, it can be, you know, it, that's malleable. Yeah, but anyone can go in a gallery anywhere and look at that stuff. Kind of, but most people feel too awkward to go in a gallery. Well, it's free. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but it's not. It's it's it it it, it is free. But you have to be such an expert to even know where to go that it's like a secret society. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, and maybe it's perfect. Maybe it, it, it's exactly the way it should be. But maybe that barrier makes it that, uh, like museums are way too busy, for example. So if everyone knew about the galleries are free, maybe it would be terrible. Right. You if can... you go to Chelsea on a Sunday, it's already too busy. Right. Or on a Saturday. So... I used to always think like wider distribution is better the more people see it the better uh, and now that museums are so busy I'm not so sure I don't think it it helps with the art experience no what they're trying to fight I went to the Louvre like, yeah, a couple yeah, forget summers about ago it. <laughs> yeah. there was uh, you know trying to see the Mona Lisa was impossible and then everyone's yeah. taking photos of it which is yeah 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 I think now Jay-Z and Beyonce did a video there and then the attendance went up 30%. Oh, oh, how could it go up anymore? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But even, so in New York, the, the MoMA is maybe the most crowded. Probably, oh yeah. And, or and, the Met. And then, yeah, but the Met is so large that you can still go into yeah, many areas disperse. that feel peaceful. Yeah. But the MoMA, specific, I, I see almost every museum exhibition in New York, or I try to, mm -hmm. I, I that's another aspect of my practice is that it takes very little time. So I have a lot of time left because I don't do anything myself. Right. Um, so I see all the exhibitions and then there's a new show at the Whitney. Like right now there's a show with the 60s paintings with bright colors. So I'll see the email announcement and I'll get excited and then I'll go with a friend and have lunch there. It's not too busy. It's great. And so I'll, I'll be excited about a lot of exhibitions. When there's an exhibition at MoMA, I just dread it, and I go at the very last <laughs> day because I just dread going into that building. Yeah. Have you found the off-peak hours, like the hours when there's the yeah, least amount of people? Yeah, I've tried Tuesday morning, and it's still busy. No good? I don't know. Yeah. So, it, it, but, but what I mean is there's this, this contradiction where MoMA is, is, is such a stamp on your career. If you get to show there, it's the most awesome thing. But... The viewing experience in a regional museum in a small town might be far superior. Yeah, that's yeah, and that well, part of that's too like you know I, a small fish in a big pond sort of thing. No, no, know? but it, the actual experience of like it, it, the person standing in the room. Oh, just yeah, and yeah. being able to enjoy the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I showed at a regional museum in Japan in the north. Mm -hmm. uh, it was 
really a great, just a great community and a great amount of people and a far superior viewing experience and visiting experience than big museums in crowded cities. Um, yeah, I'm a huge Japan fan, so yeah, I think yeah. feel like everything's just a little bit better there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but even there, there's like if you see a Warhol show in Tokyo, it's quite crowded and people doing selfie. I mean, the selfie thing is interesting, but it's kind of if someone is standing in front of the work for twenty minutes composing a shot, it's it's annoying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I try. It's also good to embrace your time, so it's like. There's an interview with Liechtenstein where he talks about, of course, I'd rather have a picnic in an open park, but what I see is gas stations, so that's what I paint. Right. So I don't think he was saying gas stations are better than Manet's picnic, but that's the he's world he was living in. He's familiar with it, yeah. He's yeah. painting what he's seeing. Yeah. Um, so, th- yeah. That was like Baudelaire's idea, right? You have to just paint your world, like what is mm. your world. Yeah, and just yeah. try to unconsciously let that seep yeah. in. But then again, that's a definition. And then there's exam- this is great Flemish writer, and he never travels. And then this travel magazine, uh, this newspaper said, do you want to go to Afghanistan on a trip and then write about that? And we'll send you there with a photographer. And he's like, no, I don't like to travel. Just send the photographer, send me the photos, and I'll make up a story. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what he did. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And he did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's like, it, just, it just came up with, with ridiculous stories next to the photos. <laughs> that's pretty good. This asshole ripped me off and this cab was way too expensive. And, uh, <laughs> it was hot and yeah. impressive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but but uh, I, I try to... Any definition, I'll try to contradict it. So, yeah. So if, if, if the definition is you have to make art about where you're from it might not be true for everyone right yeah I think that's true yeah <laughs> and yeah what are you working on now anything specific um, I'm working on a lot of new websites and, and I'm not publishing them for until the end of the year because I have a show in Amsterdam and then I'll show them there and then they go online as well so oh that's cool you kind of release it with the yeah. show yeah um Will you project those in the space? No, uh, because uh, one wall will be a series of screens with each a video of one color, mm-hmm. like an hour of red and an hour of blue, and then in a sequence like a Kelly spectrum. Mm-hmm. And the other wall will have websites in the same arrangement. So it had to be screens. And then I'm showing textile works there as well. Nice. Um, and... Um, yeah, and some other wall works. And, uh, but my day-to-day now is mostly working on websites the next few months. Yeah. Yeah. And people can check out your website, which has links to the websites that are active, yeah. correct? Yeah. Which is just yourname.com. No, it's uh, new. Oh, no, new Raphael. That's right. Yeah. But you can just Google me. But uh, right. uh, I'm sure it'll be in, linked to the, in the podcast episode. It will indeed. Yeah. So the, the, the website is partly documentation and partly works that you can Art. just see yeah no and if you search uh, good point podcast then uh, i'm gonna check it out yeah i'm excited now i had no yeah. idea yeah that's funny. was it written or uh, maybe no I, I, I try not to do you know how you're saying like too much I don't research know, too, yeah i try yeah. not to do too much to where it becomes like yeah no it, it, that's another thing like how do you present yourself online and it, there's a lot of things that i do that 
I'll show temporarily on the website or they resurface and yeah got it yeah. well thanks for it was great meeting you today yeah thank you alright thanks for coming okay thank you Thank you for listening to and supporting Sound and Vision. If you'd like to help the podcast, please tell a friend, share a link, rate and review on iTunes. The podcast has grown over the last three years thanks to spreading the word from listeners like yourself. Uh, to friends in Tokyo, I have work in two group shows, one at Maho Kubota Gallery and one at Kotaro Nukaga Gallery, up for a little while longer. Uh, I also have a group show in Milan at FL Gallery curated by franklin evans up until the 4th of september and a current group show it's a new everything at the hub robeson galleries at penn state you can check out more about my work at alfred studio on instagram check out more images from the podcast at sound and vision podcast many thanks to golden artist colors for their support of the podcast check out Raphael's work at newraphael.com Thanks to Nazca Lines, Michael Lovett for the intro, and Lolotone for the intro-outro music. And thank you to the listeners.